Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. By the 1740s, the city of New York was the second largest slaveholding city in North America. Since its earliest days as a cultural melting pot under the flag of the Dutch, the city held African slaves as a permanent underclass and became a slave-trading commercial giant. After being taken over by the English in 1667, tensions amongst the enslaved classes began to boil over into open rebellion, and fear and panic flooded the streets of Manhattan. On this episode, we discuss New York City slave rebellions of 1712 and 1741. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On season 6 of the series, we're discussing American Rebellions, the winners and losers with competing visions that helped shape the modern American Republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. The conversation's always growing. I hope you can join. You can visit my author's website for news, updates, appearances, and events. And in the springtime, we have a lot of them. BradyKreitzer.com. By the way, mention wartime. I'll give you a free book. And of course, you're home for everything wartime on the web. Wartimepodcast.com. Here in Season 6, things are picking up, business is booming, and again, I will ask for your support to keep the podcast going. You guys have been great so far. Uh, Again, I do pay for this out of pocket. I do not accept advertising. Uh, I think nothing is more boring, and nothing interrupts the flow of a podcast more than an advertisement, especially a history podcast, because largely these stories are big and tangled, uh, and a crummy commercial, Drink Your Ovaltine, right in the middle of it, uh, is just just a real buzzkill. So uh, visit the website wartimepodcast.com, contribute if you can, uh, anything helps, uh, even just a friendly email helps my morale to be honest, uh, and you'll be critical for keeping the podcast going. Uh, it means a lot to me, and uh, That's the end of my commercial, I guess. But today we're going to talk about a subject in the line of other subjects that we've dealt with this season, uh, and also a little bit different, that most people are not familiar with. And I'm talking about America's greatest city, New York City. If you visit New York City today, I would encourage it. Uh, It's a wonderful place. It's big. It's busy. It's dirty. The food is awesome. You can get the the very finest food in the world in Manhattan. Uh, And you can also get some of the grimiest food. And depending on your mood, you know, take your pick. Uh, But it's like the quintessential American city. Now, in today's political climate, I understand there's some animus, as there has been for quite some time, uh, between the city mouse and the country mouse, 
especially in the wake of a contentious presidential election. Uh, but if you are one of those people, and again, I grew up in rural western Pennsylvania, uh, that is uh, hesitant to jump right into the big city, uh, remember we're all Americans, uh, them as much as us, uh, and enjoy the benefits of it, especially New York City. Uh, because for what they lack in Super Bowl titles, of course, Pittsburgh, we have six. Um, they make up for in very deep, very intense history. One of the things I like to do is go on historical vacations here in North America. I include Canada and Mexico in that because I've been all over. And typically when you go to a place, um, like a Boston, for example, like a Gettysburg or a Philadelphia, the, the history is very evident. There are remnants of the past old buildings that have been preserved for the purposes uh, of uh, posterity, uh, maybe in deference in the beginning, but certainly uh, as, as an intentional historical preservation at the end. But if you go to New York and you're interested in the time period that I am most, that is the colonial period, the 18th century, the 17th century, you're not going to see a lot of remnants of that. Uh, and it's incredible because of how important that time period was in the basic formation of the city uh, and eventually colony and state, and in many ways of the United States today. So what am I talking about? New York City is many vacations in one, there's no doubt. Um, historical, as as recent as the incredible 9-11 memorial, it's, it's a must-see going back to the Tenement Museum, going back to some of the uh, old museums uh, that represent life in the Gilded Age and life in the Civil War. We're going to revisit a lot of different New York cities in today's episode, as well as future episodes of Wartime. Uh, but today I want to talk about the invisible New York. And that is to say the New York City that you don't see with the naked eye, the New York City in which you could live in and never know existed. I'm talking about colonial New York. If you want to study colonial New York, you're not looking uptown. Colonial New York is found south of Wall Street, the very tip of Manhattan Island. Now today, the very tip of Manhattan Island sounds like a very narrow place, considering the the sheer size of, of the city, uh, moving to, uh, again, Midtown, moving up toward Harlem and the Bronx. I mean, it's all New York City. Uh, but we're going to focus exclusively on the very tip of the city because there is a world there that has been lost and one that is of vital importance to the way the city is today uh, in its spirit, uh, as well as, believe it or not, the physical dimensions of the city. Now, if you go to New York City today, go to places like Brooklyn, go to places like the Bronx, uh, go to places like Manhattan, these are names that are just American names. But believe it or not, those names have their origins in the colonial period, long before the English ever arrive. Uh, and this is the sort of sort of idea I'm, I'm talking about. This idea that there's a lot of things that we are familiar with when it comes to this place uh, that we might not know the underlying story of. 
Also, if you go to these places today, you'll see a lot of different peoples. Most notably, the hipsters. Just kidding. Uh, my best friend's a hipster. Uh, but they're there. Uh, and they have beards, and they wear flannel, uh, and they, you know, drink Pabst Blue Ribbon, but they're out there. But when you, when you see them, and you ask them what it means to live in New York, they're going to mention a lot of things. Uh, aside from all the record stores to buy vinyl, because that's back, they'll also tell you about the multicultural aspect of New York City. And again, that's a word, multiculturalism with a stigma today. I understand that. But it's really at the core of what the place is. And again, it's part of that invisible city that most people don't see. If you would ask New Yorkers to talk about the history of New York City, the founding basic principles of New York City, and if you were to ask them if slavery was one of them, they probably wouldn't think so. At least most wouldn't. Um, they would say slavery is a southern phenomenon. Maybe it's a Caribbean phenomenon. Maybe it's a South American phenomenon. But the direct tie to the business of slavery, the slave trade, to New York City is incredibly important uh, and really vital for the economic success of the, of the colony moving forward from uh, the 16th, 50s uh, really onward uh, to the Civil War itself. Um, so these are like big, controversial, difficult topics. Slavery, uh, violence toward Native peoples, um, anti-Semitism. These are things that we are not comfortable talking about. But like I always tell my students, you know, history is not talking about the things that you're you're happy about it's talking about it's also about dealing with the things we aren't so proud of uh it might make you uncomfortable but you're not doing yourselves any favors ignoring it and because new york city is very much viewed to be far away from those ideas today i think it's a really important episode we talk about also the theme of this season so far unintentionally but i think importantly is is empire We've seen English colonies this season. We've seen Spanish colonies this season. We've seen Russian colonies this season. Holy smokes. Um, and now we're going to need to talk about one of the lesser understood uh, colonial powers in North America. And that is the Dutch. So let's talk about it. I want you to visualize New York City, the five boroughs. And I want you to visualize them without roads, without buildings without uh, the hustle and bustle of everyday life, and view them as nature would have built them. Trees, hills, birds, deer, an idyllic place. And I want you to imagine the waterways involved. If you aren't familiar with the waterways around New York City, it is so vital. So, of course, go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. Follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer or Wartime Podcast, because I tweet out, uh, sort of like easily viewable maps and images that really help back up every episode we do. If you aren't following, you know, just give it a click because it's 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 not burdensome. I just, again, tweet out and send out helpful visual imagery. At any rate, uh, this is what New York City was when in 1609, Henry Hudson sailing under the flag of Amsterdam first saw it. Henry Hudson was an explorer. This is very much an age of exploration. Uh, and he is looking for a faster waterway to China, which, again, 
New York City not exactly in the right area, but he doesn't know that. And what he sees is pretty breathtaking. He sees nothing less uh, than one of the single finest natural harbors in the world. Easily the best natural harbor in the Atlantic Ocean. And he sees that no European power has any claim to it. New York City uh, is surrounded on either side by two rivers, the East River and the Hudson River. Uh, and the Hudson River sails you uh, pretty deep into the continent of North America as far as early explorers are concerned. So when Henry Hudson first sees it, he sees this enormous and incredible fine natural harbor, easily the finest in the Atlantic Ocean. And he sees two different rivers to take you in two different directions. So he sails about 100 miles up the Hudson, looking for China, doesn't find it. He finds what would eventually become West Point, Albany, that sort of thing. Uh, he turns it back and, and comes back south and again understands exactly what he's found. Because it may not be uh, the water route to China, uh, but it is something that will be profitable for the Dutch Empire as it grows. Now a little bit about this exploration. From the very beginning, the founding of New York City was a business venture. It was founded by the Dutch West Indian Company, uh, and it was designed to make money in the beaver trade. This is a place that, when it's founded as a city, they're going to call it New Amsterdam Colony, not a city, excuse me. Um, it's about making money. New Amsterdam will be built. It will have a fort. It'll have 300 homes at its highest point. Um, again, still the very tip of Manhattan, though, uh, and... It's about cha-ching. It's about cashola. Uh, it takes 15 years of habitation before they even build a church. Think about that. So it tells you all you need to know about this place compared to the Puritans up north in New England. Uh, 15 years before even a semblance of a church is established here. That's the, that's the key. The West Indian Company averaged a profit margin, I'm not making this up, of 10% per year. I mean, you don't have corporations in the world today, global multinational corporations that have a steady 10% profit margin each year. But the, the West India Company did. And in a lot of ways, Manhattan Island, New Amsterdam, as it was called, is going to be their crowning jewel on this side of the world in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, they buy the island for the equivalent today of $600, 60 kroners back then. And they build a fort, and they build towns and communities, and they eventually will build a wall stretching from the east edge of the island all the way to the west edge of the island. This will become today's Wall Street. So if you want some semblance of what we're talking about, you're talking about Wall Street South is what was New Amsterdam. And New Amsterdam was a, ha was a happening place. Uh, it's controlled by a man named Peter Minuet, and Peter Minuet is Dutch through and through. He has this cash cow in operation. Uh, he has a way of making money, which we'll talk about. And what he needs is laborers. So Peter Minuet starts a policy in New Amsterdam uh, of basically anyone who wants to work can come here. And if you would have visited New Amsterdam in the 1640s, for example, 1650s, you would have seen Spanish speakers, French speakers, English speakers, Portuguese speakers, 
Polish speakers, German speakers. I mean, it was a multicultural place. And it really hasn't changed much 400 years later in New York today. But you would have seen other groups there too. And unlike all of those people we just mentioned, they didn't come to New Amsterdam on their own. And they didn't come to New Amsterdam seeking an escape or a better life. They were brought there against their will. Uh, I'm talking about African slaves. Slavery is a difficult topic, I understand that. But it is essential to understanding the American story. Because it's much more than a system of oppression that dehumanizes the, uh, the victim. Uh, it is an economic system. Uh, of global proportions, and the Dutch West Indian Company uh, will absolutely help you understand that. So you have to keep the two separate, but also together in that way. Uh, it is it is an institution that is one of the, the most inhumane in world history, but it's also an economic system with global implications. But the first uh, slaves that will arrive uh, in New Amsterdam are from Angola. Uh, that's in West Africa. And they will be forced to build. There's not many of them, less than a dozen. But by the time you get to the the time period we're going to be dealing with, uh, you're going to see one out of six New Yorkers uh, will be uh, enslaved. These are going to be the people that build the wall that will become Wall Street, the edge of of Dutch expansion. Uh, These are the people that are going to build the fort that will be the beating heart of the New Amsterdam colony. These are the people that will provide not only human capital, uh, but the labor, the drive, and again, the very basic underlying economic system uh, that will allow New Amsterdam to be transformed. Um, New Amsterdam, by the time you get to the 1640s, is starting to fall to pieces. Uh, Many believe there's too many different cultures, too many different languages there. There are a lot of slaves who tend to keep to themselves. There are also free Africans who live there. And a new administrator comes from the West Indies, down in the Caribbean, named Peter Stuyvesant. And Peter Stuyvesant uh, has, you know, some pretty big aspirations. He wants to transform New Amsterdam into a real functioning colony. He wants to tighten things up. Uh, There are, by the time he gets there, just to give you some reference to what I mean by that, basically... For every 20 men in New Amsterdam, there is a tavern. So it is filled with bars and taverns and drunk people on a regular basis. And they're all speaking different languages. And it's a very disconnected place in the eyes of the outsider, in the eyes of Stuyvesant. He sees groups of of Africans meeting, talking. What are they talking about? Are they scheming against us? Uh, Never far from the mind of a slave owner is the idea of slaves operating together. But when Peter Stuyvesant gets there, he again shores things up. Uh, He tells people, we're going to close a lot of these taverns. We're going to impose new taxes. We're going to regulate a lot of the things that have been going unchecked. And Peter Stuyvesant gets things going, you know, pretty well. Uh, It becomes functional, becomes profitable. If you are the English in Massachusetts or Virginia, it's a real problem. It's a functioning Dutch colony in the middle of uh, your North American empire. And interesting things happen. Again, things that New Yorkers aren't really comfortable with, but I think important we talk about. In the 1650s, a group of Sephardic Jews seeking uh, refuge or asylum 
uh, from South America, from the Spanish Inquisition, will come to New Amsterdam. And, and Peter Stuyvesant will basically tell them, uh, no Jew will live here. He uses the word infestation. This is a dark chapter. And he tells them, no Jews will live in New Amsterdam. Well, remember, New Amsterdam is a business proposition. And whenever the owners of the, of the Dutch West India Company find out about this, they scold Stuyvesant. They tell him, you're running a business. As long as people keep to themselves, let them worship how they want. Let them produce. But you're not running a religious colony. And there's a lot of those in that time period. So leave them alone. So 1654, you have the very first Rosh Hashanah celebrated there in New York. Really, in the New World, anywhere. And it's it's there. And considering New York's wonderful, bustling Jewish community today, um, you, you have that interesting history started on an anti-Semitic path, but quickly redirected based on really nothing more than the feelings and the wants of the community. But what we're going to talk about today is another side to that. And it gets back to the issue of slavery, something not generally associated with the history of New York, but vital for the colony. And we're going to talk about what happens when the people who are there, who are kept in a permanent underclass, who see these sort of interesting, wonderful, multicultural benefits of a place like New Amsterdam, uh, what happens when they want a piece of that pie? What happens when they rebel? That's what the season's all about. So this will be a challenge for a lot of people. There are a lot of people, I think, who don't quite frankly, want to hear this story, but it is vital for understanding the history of our country and exactly what people are fighting for. A major change is going to happen in the 1660s, which will forever change the course of the history of New York. And it's when an English fleet arrives off the coast of Manhattan. This comes in 1664, September 8th. Uh, a ship will be there with guns pointed at the city. Peter Stuyvesant will take to the tower and tell his people, let's defend our colony. But the people of New York make it very clear to Stuyvesant, we don't really care who controls us because no one does. We are kind of a free people. Um, we're not going to help you fight the English. By the way, if the English opened fire, they could burn the whole city down. It was all row houses, 3,000 people. So they basically tell Stuyvesant, just give up the city, whether the Dutch rule us or the English, it doesn't matter because none of us are either. Again, it's a multicultural place. So 1667, the Treaty of Breda will end Dutch occupation of what is today New York City. And New Amsterdam will be renamed New York after the Duke of York. It's given to him as a birthday present by King Charles of England. And the end of the Dutch period is, is there. And they leave behind little clues that it happened. If you're going to New York today, the southern tip of Manhattan, and you're looking for little clues about Dutch occupation, this vibrant world that was New Amsterdam, you won't find them. The buildings are gone. But you will see them in a few places. One is in the way the streets are laid out um, in that area. As maps show pretty close to what the Dutch actually had it as. Again, Wall Street being sort of the northern expanse of it. Uh, <clears throat> and the other are in the place names. For example, whenever New Amsterdam was founded, uh, 
a man named Bronk bought a large plantation north of the colony. And this area became known as Bronx Land. Uh, today, the Bronx. Uh, across the river, uh, there was a place established called uh, Breekline, uh, which was effectively named after a city in Amsterdam, Breekline. And of course, this will become uh, Brooklyn. Um, so, uh, these sort of things are there. Uh, there was a large path carved in the middle of the colony called uh, Breedway. This becomes Broadway. These are all little Dutch touches that are gone. And when the English take over, you know, New York has a system. And that system is not one that needs to be changed or wants to be changed. So it's not going to be changed. Uh, the English take over a functioning colony in the 1660s. Uh, and aside from changing the names of some of the places, uh, Staten Island becomes known as Richmond, these sort of things. It's already cooking. It's already going. They're not going to change something that's not broken. That includes the bustling and, and outrageously profitable slave trade that is the, is the primary economic drive of the colony. Whenever the English took it over, one of the things Peter Stuyvesant did uh, as a Dutch leader was to make New York City, New Amsterdam, uh, the the primary entrance hub for slaves coming uh, westward across the Atlantic before going into the Caribbean. It was a slave entrepot, and it was huge money at the time. That being said, when the English take over, um, they're not going to change that. They have no qualms against slavery. It's huge, hugely profitable. Uh, so one thing that does tend to change, I think, for the uh, African peoples who live there uh, is that the English will impose the same standard of slave codes they had mostly in other places, like the Caribbean, like the American South, and so on. And by the time you get to 1712, <clears throat> again, New Amsterdam is long gone. New York is here to stay. You have a large number of enslaved peoples uh, living in pretty deplorable conditions, but who do have the freedom to meet and congregate uh, with others like them. African peoples, both enslaved and free, uh, which becomes very troubling for the slave owners. Uh, right at the corner, along the East River uh, of the city, uh, there is a locale where you can rent out day laborers, slaves, instead of owning your slaves. Uh, this is a place where a lot of different peoples come together and where a lot of different ideas are exchanged. And in 1712, uh, the sort of worst nightmare for the citizens of New York uh, comes to pass whenever a slave rebellion occurs. And here's how it breaks down. On April 6th, 1712. So you're dealing really 50 years before the revolution and 150 years before the Civil War. America's history with slavery is a long history. Uh, a group of slaves set fire to a building owned by a man named Peter Van Tilburgh. Very Dutch name. He didn't leave. Peter Stuyvesant didn't leave either. The English flag now flies over the city, over the colony. Uh, but again, it was never really about that, so the city keeps going as it was. When the fire ignited, it sort of became a signal 
to other enslaved peoples. Again, that the European residents didn't really understand, uh, but that the African slaves did. That the revolt was on. Uh, many people came to put out the fire. Remember how closely uh, bound together the, the buildings are in New York? Because that fire could easily spread and take out the whole town. And when those people came to put out the fire, they were met by a band of anywhere from 20 to 30 slaves, we aren't uh, sure for certain, uh, that attacked them with guns, axes, knives, whatever farming tools they had. Uh, this was an organized rebellion by the enslaved peoples of New York. Uh, and it's the only way I can really describe it. It's sort of like if, uh, if a person had been living in a house for 30 years that they uh, absolutely believed was haunted, and then after 30 years, they finally see a ghost. I mean, that's the reaction. They always had a sneaking suspicion slave rebellion would happen, but it never actually did. But when it does happen, uh, it's all hands on deck. Many people ran to the very southern tip of the island, what today is known as the Battery, to tell Robert Hunter, the governor of the, of the colony, that this happened. Uh, the militia is sent out to fight them. Eventually, this 1712 slave rebellion is put down. Forty slaves are brought to trial. Eighteen are acquitted. The rest are brutally killed. Four of these people are burned alive. One of them is crushed with a wheel. Uh, one is starved to death for his participation. One, a pregnant woman, is kept alive until she can give birth because, again, that child can be sold at profit. This was not about preserving life. This was about getting your money's worth. And she was ultimately killed as well. After the 1712 slave rebellion, you're going to see new, very harsh slave codes placed on the African Americans of New York City. And the 1712 Slave Rebellion, and notice I went through that a little quickly, is really the catalyst to the story. Um, because there's another one coming, much bigger, 30 years later. If you ask about the major slave rebellions of New York City, the 1712 Rebellion would never be considered the big one. That should tell you where this is going. Uh, there's going to be a bigger one yet to come, but the memory of that 1712 rebellion is going to linger in the minds of uh, New York's uh, European population, slave-owning population, because they know that if they let their guard down even for a second, there's another one coming down the pike. And that becomes one of their guiding defensive principles of the colony. One of the drawbacks... I would say, of a multicultural society, because we live in one, is that people can tend to enclave themselves or isolate themselves from people who look different or sound different or have different traditions. It's part of the American story, I think. Not one of the great ones, but just something that happens. Uh, I know when my ancestors moved to this country uh, from Eastern Europe, they all lived in one small town, a suburb of the city of Pittsburgh in western Pennsylvania. And they had their own churches, and they had their own foods, and if you go there today, you can still see these things. 
Uh, but after a generation or two, everybody mixes uh, and, you know, things tend to change. But there all, always is that suspicion. And in the 1740s, an event will happen that can allow some of those suspicions to boil over. And again, New York City as a melting pot is very much one of those places. It's a racial melting pot. It's an ethnic melting pot. It's a religious melting pot. You have large waves of Irish immigrants coming in for the first time. So there is this reflexive anti-Catholic bend toward them. And again, it's just another layer uh, of suspicion that people find themselves under. The 1740s are a difficult time period here in North America. Uh, there is a war with France. Uh, there is always a war with somebody in the English world uh, around the planet. So tensions are high. Uh, there's a war with Spain. So you have this, again, anti-Catholic bend. It's a very challenging time. And again, when the pot is set to boil, as John Adams said, the scum rises to the top. I love that line because it's very indicative of what's happening here. And in the 1740s, again, it happens in New York just like anywhere else. Uh, believe it or not, in 1741, Manhattan, uh, New York City today, had the second largest population of slaves in the New World, second only to Charleston, South Carolina. So think about that for a second, how little history we think New York City has with slavery. And as late as the 1740s, it's still the second most populous slave-holding city in North America. That's important. So what I'm saying is you have, you have a house that's sort of soaked in gasoline. And one spark can set that off. Uh, in the 1740s, quite literally, it's going to be a fire. What am I talking about? In April of 1741, 30 years after the first slave rebellion in New York's history, you're going to see a series of buildings be set on fire. We don't know if this is arson but the people at the time definitely think it is. One of the most significant homes burned is the home of the governor of New York. The major fort that defends the city, Fort George, is burned. And almost one night after another, in the spring of 1741, individual buildings, homes, businesses, suddenly burst into flames. Now, when you have a city that's already supercharged, with a lot of ethnic and racial and linguistic and religious animus, and you have these mysterious fires starting, you can imagine it doesn't take long for people to start blaming whoever they want. Uh, and, of course, it's always the person they consider personally to be their biggest enemy. This is going to cause the city to try and weed out who's responsible for this. They ask the slave communities, is it you? Uh, they give a full pardon to anyone who will come forward with information, and nobody does. Until a 16-year-old Irish girl named Mary Burton develops a story that will quite literally change the history of the colony. Mary Burton is Irish. She's Catholic. She's an outsider to many of the English landed families who live there. She's arrested for stealing. She was poor. And in exchange for a pardon, she tells the largely English authorities exactly what they want to hear. She basically tells them uh, there is a joint conspiracy between prominent Irish citizens of the city and slaves. 
the Irish citizens are giving the slaves uh, places to discuss potential rebellion and schemes. They're aiding and abetting them. Uh, and this story is told time and time again. And Mary Burton will tell the story over and over again for a period of weeks. And every time she tells it, the story gets a little bigger. The people involved, the inner circle, get a little larger. And the story she begins with and the story she ends with are very different stories. And a sort of hysteria sweeps over the city. Suddenly, the burning and destruction of the city is a black problem and a Catholic problem. Uh, and a lot of different groups get roped into this. But at the end of the day, you have a hysteria and a panic that rivals, in my opinion, anything seen in the history of North America, including the Salem Witch Trials from 50 years earlier. In many ways, this is worse because you're going to see more people die as a result. By the end of the trials, and again, this is done without evidence, only the testimony of this one girl who was arrested and exchanged a story for clemency, you are going to see 160 black men and 21 white men arrested from May until August, so basically the whole summer of 1741, you're going to see 17 black men and four white men hanged. But here's where things really take a dangerous and important turn. You begin to see punishments doled out that are long expired by the 1740s. Punishments that are almost medieval. For example, 13 black men will be burned at the stake, literally burned alive, the punishment they reserve for witches, which are equally ludicrous because witches don't exist, in Europe 100, 200, 300 years earlier. You're going to see 70 black men banished from New York City forever. You're going to see seven white Irishmen deported as well. For all of this, that young girl Mary Burton received 100 pounds from the city and again had her sentence commuted for stealing what she did. So what we're dealing with here. Uh, is an important history. And I included it in this season for a few different reasons. One is that it does showcase rebellions. Some that were real, New York 1712 rebellion, and some that were largely fictional. You did have a series of fires, probably by arsonists, in 1741. But you had a response that was entirely overblown dramatic, over-the-top, and many, many people died. You had no evidence involved here, but you had a hysteria and a panic caused by a rebellion a generation earlier. Um, New York City is a wonderful place. There's no city like it in the world. Go there. Enjoy it. Uh, but understand that when you walk those streets, you are walking in the footsteps of many other people with a lot of things on their minds and their issues that still affect Americans today. What immigration is good? What immigration is bad? What is the role of an immigrant community in the multicultural society? Who owns a city and who doesn't? Uh, what is justice? What is not? I mean, these are big questions that we deal with and we fight with, and that's a healthy discussion. Because we recognize there are there is work to be done. But we can't act like uh, history is a vindication all the time. Again, many people in New York City would not 
uh, I think, understand the, the complicity of that city in a lot of these very terrible things that are typically associated with different parts of the country. Slavery is a Southern phenomenon. Slavery is a South American phenomenon. Not many people understand the role that New York had with slavery, or anti-Semitism for that matter, as we talked about. Uh, but these were competing visions. Slaves in 1712 saw a multicultural and melting pot of a place that New York was, and they saw people from all around the world coming. Portuguese, Spanish, French, English, Jews from South America, Jews from Spain. And they saw that they largely didn't have a place in that society. So rebellion was a very natural course of action for them. There's no evidence of this today in New York City. You're not going to see where these places happened. And that's one of the neat things about New York City. It's largely built over itself time and time and time again, showing no favoritism toward one generation or another because you know the next generation is going to build on top as well. Uh, and that's sort of an essence of New York is that they rebuild. Um, there's only so much space, so the history has to pile on top of itself. But there's a lot there. And uh, there are places you can go in the city that let you see that. But I thought this was an important one before we jump ahead to the revolutionary period. And we're going to be dealing with the revolution moving forward for the next three or four episodes. Uh, because rebellion is a shared phenomenon. And uh, it may surprise you in terms of where it happens, when, and why. So thank you again for joining us. Please visit the website wartimepodcast.com in this season of giving. Any little bit helps keep the podcast going and commercial free. I certainly appreciate it, and I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.